Hi, it's Barry Moulds. I'm the author of the new book called Change Masters, how to actually make the changes you already know you need to make. And you're listening to my quest for the best with Bill Ringle. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringle here, host of My Quest for the Best, the podcast for ambitious small business leaders. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished experts who want to share their knowledge and experiences in order to help you be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating toward more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is Barry Moltz. Barry Moltz helps small business owners get unstuck. As a small business expert, he's the author of seven award-winning books. He hosts a small business radio show in Chicago on AM820 and is a returning guest on My Quest for the Best. Barry lives in Scottsdale, Arizona, and is here to talk about his book, Change Masters, how to actually make the changes you already know you need to make. Welcome back, Barry. Thanks for having me, Bill. When you were growing up, Barry, who's somebody who influenced or inspired you? I was really big into the Boy Scouts, Bill, and I had a scoutmaster called Chuck Brower. Chuck Brower was a local lawyer, and we had a big pack. I'll never forget that we used to go on camping trips. At the very end of the campfire, we'd say, good night, Chuck. He would say, Good night, men. When we were boys, no one ever called us men, but Chuck considered us men. I really liked that a lot. You were held at the time? Oh, I had to be like 12 years old. That's a big deal. What kind of message did that send to you and your friends when he said good night, men? That we had to take responsibility for our actions. We may have been out there without our parents, but we couldn't really act like kids and do whatever we wanted. But he gave us a certain level of responsibility. And I think all of us boys at the time, all of us men, took it seriously. Do you remember when that sort of asking people to step into a new role came to you as an adult, maybe when you were leading one of your businesses, maybe the first time you started to manage and you were able to set an expectation and you decided to set it to the aspirational level like your scoutmaster did for you? Yeah, I actually got into it fairly early in high school when I was actually head of a regional Jewish youth group. This was serious. I was ahead of a state with thousands of members and I got to be president of the regional youth group. They actually installed a telephone in my bedroom so I could use it as the president of the organization. I had officers and I had a board and at 16 and 17 years old, I had to step up and almost run it like a business with an adult advisor. That was a fun time. It was with budgets and everything. That's exciting. When we talk about change, especially business owners, you and me included, we want the change that comes without effort, cost, discomfort, or risk. We all want that automatic, certain to win, no penalty change. So when people ask, where do we sign up for that? What perspective do you share that helps bring them back to earth? We can sign up for that by doing the same thing that we've always done. But as Albert Einstein says, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing we've always done and expect to get different results. The reason that people don't like change is that your brain biologically is a pattern making machine. It wants you to keep doing the same things over and over again because it figures if you've been doing something a certain way and you survived and you're staying healthy, it wants to keep you doing that. It doesn't want you to change. Change is more work. And especially, Bill, as we get older, our brains get lazy. We don't really want more work or a new way of doing things. I read in your book about how the brain has twin mandates. It strives for things that feel good and those that it expects will avert disaster. And it gives us that dopamine hit. You quote psychologist Heidi Grant Halverson, who says it's not just that people fear change, though it's that they genuinely believe, often on a subconscious level, that when you're doing something a particular way for some time, it must be a good way to do things. The longer you've been doing that way, the better it is. Small business owners who have been successful for a while think that this is what is going to lead to more success in spite 
light of the evidence. In order to overcome this, what do you recommend that business owners say to themselves and others in order to affect change in their business? You bring up a good point, Bill. Change in an industry rarely comes from the industry leader. If you look at taxis versus Ubers and Lyfts, taxis could have thought of this idea, but they were doing so well just doing the taxi model why would they ever change anything else? If you look at the Yellow Pages, they were incredibly successful for a very long time. They could have got into computer search well before anybody else, but they didn't because they're making so much money from publishing the Yellow Pages. You have to listen to what the market's doing. It's hard to make those changes. The whole thrust of the book is the way that you make changes is to take small, patient, iterative steps to understand why you're making these changes what pain you're trying to resolve or avoid. I'm a big believer, Bill, that people only really make changes when they're in enough pain to make them. If they're not enough pain, they'll just keep doing what they've always done. As we said earlier, they'll do what they've always done and get what they've always gotten. It's very rare that situations will change on their own that way, unless they're forced by some external circumstance. Now, Barry, you wrote this book based upon your own experiences and working with others. What's an example of a business owner who came to you with a change that he or she wanted to make? Let's first talk about the inspiration for the book really is this singular figure, Joe, where I was invited to his company to help him change his business so he could make more money. I was in a long line of consultants that he had brought into his business. I never really could understand. You brought some really intelligent people in. Why am I here? You should have already solved your problem. I realized later on what really happened. He would bring me in pay me a lot of money. We would go through all the problems in his company, the possible solutions. We'd lay out exactly what he needed to do to make more money in his business. Then nothing ever happened. He didn't listen to any of my advice. Then he fired me and went on to the next consultant. I realized at that point, why do people do this? Why do people bring people in, pay them a lot of money, know the changes that they have to make in order to make their business better, and then do nothing? There had to be something biologically and psychologically going on in their body and brain for them not to move because as small business owner, they know better, but they can't help themselves. Barry, you had the insight that Joe wasn't the only one acting in this irrational way. What I had to do was for the people that I was able to get change, we had to break it down to very small changes so the fear wouldn't be so big. We're not leaping any giant chasms. I had to hold them accountable for each and every single small step. When people retell the story about how they changed their life, they changed their business, they talk about giant leaps, how they crossed this chasm. They took a huge leap. They went for it anyways. Mostly that's a lie. They took very small steps, tested each step, succeeded, failed, went to the very next very small step. When they retell a story, Bill, it's much more romantic about these giant risks, but that's not how it really happens. That's how legends are written. It's not exactly. how it actually happens. Exactly. <laughs> there are a lot of examples in the book about maybe wanting to grow their business or have someone take on a different role or responsibility within the business. Can you share an example with me about that? Yeah, I do a lot of work with family businesses. Jerry's located on the West Coast. They have a family business that is in the property management. He wanted to turn over his family business to his three sons. We had to really imagine what the business would look like with just his three sons and without him. We gave each of the sons a responsibility in the business, and he actually had to pull back that responsibility and let that son either succeed or fail in very small tasks that we gave them. He was able to gain confidence in each of his sons, so he actually could make a change, but not all at once. He wanted to do this, obviously, before he was too feeble, too old, or he died. That was important to him. One of the things that I really enjoyed reading about 
is a particular point that I find myself having to explain to business owners many times over. That is the weakness of cash incentives and how it doesn't really train people to do the activity effectively. Share with me your perspective on cash incentives, why they don't work, and what people should be doing instead. People always think if you pay someone to do something, they'll do it and they'll do it more. That always doesn't work or it works for a short period of time. So one of the companies I worked for, there was this gentleman, Max, where he had to get the financial statements done every single month at a certain time. So the executive team could review it. He always had a difficulty getting it done, even though it was part of his job. The CEO one time said, Max, if you can get it done by the 15th, we'll give you a $500 bonus. They did that and he got it done just that month. Then they tried to do it the next month with the same bonus and he didn't get it done. The next bonus month, same bonus, he didn't get it done. It really was an incentive for them. Again, you might be able to get short-term results with cash bonuses to get people to take a certain action, but cash on its own will not get permanent change. People look to game the system. They'll look to skirt little sideways. They'll argue on whether the change was accomplished or not, but doesn't really work. Change has to really come from within someone. They have to really be shown that making that change will actually be better for them and easier or more productive or more profitable for them to do their job. That's the way you get change done in an organization. It's really tying it into the purpose of the change that's being made and how it's beneficial to have it made and detrimental to continue letting it lapse. You loved a book by James Clear, Atomic Habits, like I did. He's a term for it, acrasia. That's when you do one thing, even though you know you should be doing something else. He talks about the author, Victor Hugo, who was on deadline writing The Hunchback of Notre Dame, instead spent a year gallivanting around and doing other things as his publisher just tore his hair out. My favorite example of that from a movie is Lord of the Ring. After all the pain and sacrifice and struggle, the ring finally has a hold on Frodo as he brings it up to Mount Doom. We're all yelling at the screen, throw the ring into the river of lava, for goodness sake. He doesn't do it. What's your favorite example of a movie or a book character that falls prey to this? One of my favorite movies of all time is Jerry Maguire. I like that movie just because at first he learns the futility of what he's doing and he publishes this manifesto basically for change. He realizes that most of the people in the industry don't really want that. It's not really what it's about. It's about making money, but he really wants to do that. He wants to really have personal relationship with his clients. And he goes through a lot of stages until he's actually forced to make this change because he only has one client left. Therefore, he's got to change and have a personal relationship. Of course, in the end of the movie, it really works out for him. He may have not grasped this change quickly, but he also didn't grasp that he had Renee Zellweger at Hello Either. Exactly. Another thing that many business owners are vexed by is the fact that they can call somebody who's a reference for a candidate they have for an important position. They get questions. Often people can answer confidential questions and often they'll sing the praises of the person who's applying for the job. But then when the person is actually hired, they're not effective and they don't work out. And the leaders are left wondering, how did they go wrong? The reference wasn't dishonest. Let's just start with that case. They weren't dishonest. What happened instead? We can look at sports all the time to give you a perfect example of this, right? You have a star player on a team who obviously had the statistic to do really well, and then he or she goes to another team, and quite honestly, they stink. So really, what happened? We have to understand that someone's performance is tied to a bunch of things. First of all, it's tied to how well can they operate inside the culture of your company. The second thing is, do we actually give 
give them at a lower level the processes, tools, and direction for them to be able to accomplish their job. Too many times when a new person comes into an organization, especially with a lot of experience, we don't give them any training in how to do it or what we expect or even any of the tools. It becomes a problem. Have you encountered a company within your consulting or with your radio show that has turned it around and they've realized, gosh, we're not going to hire employee number 55 the same way that we hired number five. So they've built this into their onboarding. They've built this into their practices so that it's successful. I'm working with a manufacturing company in the Midwest. The guy's name is Mark. What Mark would do is he has unlimited demand for his business and, and he needed people on the factory floor that were making anywhere between 10 and $11 an hour. The average person would stay in his company one week on the floor. He kept on wondering why were people staying just only one week? It turns out that they dealt with hazardous waste and it was very intimidating and they never train people on how to actually do the job. Now what he does is he actually pays people more, about $15 to $16 an hour, spends the first month training the person, not only with hands-on, but also with videos. He's really been able to retain the people a lot more. He's really turned around the company because having someone only stay for a week bill is really a problem. Yeah, that's expensive. One of the other images from your book that I, I highlighted is the double helix trap of marketing and sales that many business leaders encounter. That's often called like the feast and famine or the roller coaster cycle that when things are slow, you take on these big marketing efforts in order to drum up business. But as soon as sales pour in, companies pull back on that marketing and look to execute and deliver on it. What's an example of why this happens based upon the research you did for Change Masters? I first wrote about this first concept in my book, Bounce, about 15 years ago, because I felt that a lot of small business owners, especially where there are only a handful of people, they would do the work, but as soon as they had no work, they would put, do these marketing campaigns. And then when the marketing campaign yielded some more work, they stopped doing the marketing campaign, the exact thing that brought in the business. And as you were talking about, it was the feast and famine, or I called it the double helix trap because sometimes they do sales and marketing, sometimes they do nothing and it would keep their business flat. That has gotten easier today, Bill, because with all the electronic means to be able to market, you can actually keep that going while you're actually executing the work. See, I really believe that we can't sell anything to anybody. We just have to be there when people are ready to buy. That's what marketing is all about. It's to remind people that you're here. So when they have a problem you can solve, you get in the maybe pile. You're one of the three people they think of that can solve your problem. What are maybe two or three ways that you recommend that people take steps to do that so that you keep a full pipeline rather than go back into an empty well when you're thirsty? These days, it's all about content marketing, right? It's to show people that you're an expert in a given area. You can display that expertise either on social media or through blog posts or posting on various social media tools. The best part about it is these days is you can automate all that in a couple different ways. One is you can find freelancers to write the first draft of an article that you want to publish for $25 or $50. You can just clean it up. Also, there are tools to do automatic posting on social media or on your blog post. That will happen automatically while you're busy doing other things. You just have to set it up at the beginning of the month. Now, you have to monitor this thing because if things happen in the world like COVID, or the war in Ukraine, you don't really want to be talking about things that aren't relevant to people at the time. Yeah, relevancy is a huge key. You talk about making sure that your culture is change capable. How do you create that culture of change? What are one or two 
symptoms to let someone know that their culture is not ready for change? And what are one or two steps you would encourage them to take in order to make their culture ready for change? A couple things. One is if the change is always from top down, one of the mistakes that a lot of business owners make is they have what I call the change of the week, right? The small business owner comes in and says, all right, from now on, we're going to do things this way. They tell people to make the change. And the next week they make another pronunciation that is exactly the opposite of what they said they were going to do the week before. What effect does this have on people? They don't take any of the changes seriously because they know in a week it's going to be something different. You've and got one of the symptoms of that might be turnover because people get tired of the whipsaw. Exactly. Exactly. Then where change really has to come from is either from the top down where the owner says, there's a change you want to make, goes to the various staff members and say, how should we implement this change? This is why we have to do it. What is your recommendation as the actions we should take and actually to complete this inside the company? Or you have to allow people from on the front lines to make changes or suggest make changes as they see fit. The best way this works is you land the idea as a senior manager in the company and you talk with the people who are actually doing the work. Hey, what's the best way to implement this thing? Take their ideas and go with it, at least initially. One of the pieces of wisdom I pulled from your book, Change Masters, is that it's important to be ready with your response. In other words, don't criticize them. Don't set them up for failure. Instead, set them up to succeed and to make it safe to say stupid things as a suggestion, to be able to have small failures so long as you're learning from them. What else would you emphasize to help people be more adept at creating a culture of change? Accepting people's failures. We say, sure, we'll accept people's failures, especially as Americans. But most of us are incredibly critical of people's failures, right? That's why we love to watch reality TV shows, because a lot of people feast on other people's failures. The other side really is to make small failures. You see, a company can succeed through small failures because it's nothing that's going to send them off the side of the cliff. If you can have a small failure, figure out what the result is, learn what you can, if you can at the time, because you always can't learn right at that time, then try and take another step, give you another chance of success after that initial failure, then you'll get to where you want to go. Remember, success is never a straight path, regardless of what people think, right? It's very zigzaggy. You make a decision, you go over here, you go over here, you go over here. You look at the evolution of some of these very successful companies, even Amazon, right? Amazon didn't become a worldwide distributor of goods. They started with books for a long time, could make it work. Overnight success usually takes seven to 10 years. It's not a zigzag with a perfect predictable pattern. It's more like a zigzag with crayons tied to a monkey's paws. I always talk about it. You're like attacking in a boat and the wind keeps shifting if you're in a sailboat, but you just got to figure it out as you're going. The other thing that I think that came out of the research that you did is that it's important to model that it's safe to make failures. That is one of the aspects that should come from top down rather than delegating or assigning it to people and saying, yeah, let's see how this works out. But that sends a different message and not a valuable message to the rest of the troops. Isn't that right? You have to admit that you've made mistakes. I think in recent years, that's become more difficult. We've had a, a former president that never admitted to making any kind of mistake. And I think that's a problem. And you have also the prevalence of lawsuits. I think people are afraid to admit they make mistakes. But I think if the leader is humble and said, hey, yeah, here's what. We screwed up there. Or I screwed up. I'll take responsibility for that. Instead of saying something like a former president says, I take no responsibility, those kinds of things. The buck really does stop with you. If you made the mistake, that's what you should do. I don't think something called blame storming, going around the room, figuring out 
whose fault it was really benefits anybody. Figure out what the heck went wrong and what we can do differently and let's take another shot at it. What's important to emphasize here is that people can't say we have brainstorming to some degree or another within our company. Why doesn't it just stop it? People surely recognize how horrible it makes everyone feel, except perhaps the people who are pointing the fingers. Companies can exist that. It's just going to hold them back. It's going to restrict them from hiring better talent. It's going to block them from having better relationships with their customers. What else would you caution people around that who have that as part of their culture today? First of all, I think that some people really do enjoy it to point out whose fault it was because it wasn't my fault. When we had two kids growing up, I said, who did this? My younger son would always go, not me. Well, there was only two sons, so it had to be the other one. I think in a sense, people do enjoy that. We have to understand calling people out on the carpet or having a hall of shame or a hall of blame really doesn't get anywhere. What happens? This person feels bad about themselves. You blame this person. Does it make them not want to make mistakes in the future? Sure, but it also makes them want to play it safe. Perhaps they can't do their job most effectively in the future. That's a problem. You also were very transparent in the book about your previous companies and when they failed, you had a company called Yes, We Deliver. There was an insight that I wish that you would share about why that didn't succeed, that you were able to go back and understand and what's the result of having that insight now that you went back, looked at it and took responsibility? Yeah, I created this as one of my first companies. It was a delivery guide for all the places that delivered in Chicago. Think of it as a previous version of Grubhub or something like that, except it was in a book format. Uh, it had worked in other cities. It wasn't a new idea. I thought if we could roll out the book, we have a, a good process. We were very underfunded. We could just hire part-time people. They could go out to retail places and they could sell the ads in the book. That didn't turn out well. We went out of business because we could not hire the best people really to execute the plan. I realized in the end that business really is not about the ideas. It's about execution. If it's about execution, it's really about having the best people around you. How has your perspective on hiring changed to a more detailed level than simply hiring better people? What would you look for? What types of ways would you do that differently with this added benefit of experience as well as research that you've done for Change Masters? To hire the best people, of course, they've got to have the skills, but are they a cultural fit? Are they someone that you can groove with and other people in your organization can groove with? Are they going to add something to the organization that someone doesn't have? People don't all have to be the same, but they should be complementary with an E. That's why I really look at, is there some kind of synergy with those people? That's really critical, especially at the management level. Have you worked with someone who was hiring maybe one of your client companies and help them understand how to add these culture fit questions to their screening process? If so, what was the result? Yeah, I had this client, Mike, on the West Coast. It was a services company that served big retailers. They always hired the exact same type of people. In fact, the exact same race, background, socioeconomic, and it really was stunting their company. So I said, let's open it up to different people from different cultures and different backgrounds. I would say over a period of two years, he almost had the United Nations there. It was really wonderful because they added so much to the culture of the company. And they're also able to reach out to more types of customers with different kinds of experiences rather than just the narrow thing they've been focusing on. In the end, he'd say that was really a huge win. And he recently sold his business for $50 million. So that was all good. I have a really important question for you, Barry. Are you ready for the My Quest for the Best Lightning Round? Absolutely. Let's do it. At the beginning of the interview, I asked you about someone who influenced you growing up. You talked about your Scoutmaster. When you were a teenager, Barry, what's a song that you love? Oh, God. I think that I listened to the 70s 
70s channels on XM. There's a song called December 1963, or it's called Oh, What a Night. I just remember that song because it puts you in the mood that you really want to go out there and have fun with your friends. And whenever I hear it, I can't stop but get up and dance. Absolutely. It's got a great beat. One of your favorite expressions in the book you say is, not my circus, not my monkey. Can you share what that means to you? I think a lot of people take responsibility for things that aren't in their purview, or they take on problems of other things that are going on that they can't control. For example, not my circus, not my monkey. It's like, all right, this is a monkey. Here's a problem that's going on. I don't control that monkey. He's not in my circus, not in my business. Let me stop worrying about it. Too many of us take problem on problems of other people and other organizations that we can't control. We just got to focus on what we can do and take care of our monkeys, our circus. How has that phrase helped you filter out what not to do in order to build a stronger business in the last year or two? I was very fortunate when I was 10 years at IBM, I became a manager there and they sent you away to management charm school for a month. I learned how to be a manager and most small business owners have no idea how to delegate. What they do is they try to actually not only help people in the organization do their job, they end up doing their people's jobs. Their people come to them with a problem, a monkey. It sits on the manager's desk until the manager solves it, gives the monkey back to the individual. There's this famous business case study from Harvard Business School called Who's Got Your Monkey? We have to teach people that when people that work for you come in with problems, you can help them work through the problem, the monkey, but they've got to come up with solutions and that monkey's got to leave with them when they came in. Because if you don't delegate an organization, it's just going to be you. You can't scale a business to where you need to take it. Is there a practical, concrete example of how you've done that in the last year or so? As I've brought in my own organization, and now I have a very small organization, only three people, as I brought in my own organization, people get responsibilities and tasks for given areas. I don't check on up on them. I just expect results and I let them make their own decisions. For example, I have a radio show and there's a booking producer. I let her schedule people in the order and pick who should be on the show because she knows I'm not second guessing her. She's trained. She understands what we've been doing for a long time. If I went back and I checked every single time or she had to come to me and say, do you want this person on the show? Do you want this person on the show? Do you want this person on the show? It's not really effective. Yeah, it's called making yourself a bottleneck. Barry, what would you say is the best business advice you ever received as a business owner? I would say one of my favorite slogans is 1982, Bill Clinton, when he was running for president, used in his campaign office. His said, it's the economy, stupid. That was a sign they had in his office. But every business I ever had, I had a sign that said, it's cash flow, stupid. For people to understand, it's not about sales. It's not about profit. It's about cash flow. I think most small business owners don't understand that cash flow, the amount of money in your bank, is what's going to make you successful or not. Figure out what adds and subtracts to cash flow. What would you say is the worst advice, either in business or in life, you ever received? I had a manager at IBM, and his name was George. And he used to have sales contests where first prize was lunch with him. I always said, what's second prize? Two lunches with you. Again, I think as a manager, you can't make it about you. You got to make it about something else. That's a lesson I learned there. What is a particular, a specific change you're working on in your business in order to make it more effective in the year ahead? Yeah, I think that the, the change that I've really been working on is I've decided now post-pandemic, I'm going to do a lot less traveling. I was traveling every single week to do presentations in front of large groups. I think going forward, I'm going to do less of that because during the pandemic, obviously I did none of that. Now I've been focusing on mergers and acquisitions for small businesses, as well as really focusing my consulting practice on family businesses. Because I think my combination of business experience 
and 15 years of being in therapy, I think that works out really well. What's your definition of personal success? I know I'm being successful when I can support my family in something that I love doing. That's definition of my success. What does it mean when you achieve that? My children all have their own jobs in their 20s. I have a second home here in Scottsdale. I get to quit work every day at two or three o'clock and go ride my bike or hike around the mountains. I think I'm there. What would you say is the most important habit, routine, or belief that you've stopped in the last year that's brought you the most pleasure or personal satisfaction? One thing that I've done a lot less social media and watching the news, that's really helped because I think many times a lot of social media or watching the news doesn't bring positive things into your life. So I've tried to get off of that habit. What's one thing you found yourself doing more of that you've cut that out? I have found that being outside more and exercising every single day for at least 45 minutes really has helped me. As I've aged, I want to be outside closer to nature. And that's really made a difference in my life. That's terrific. Let's talk about a practice that people don't follow. It's a lack of awareness that change. Let me start here. Business owners know that they need to change. They want their people to change, but they don't create the environment or as we we're talking about earlier, the culture for change. What are one or two arguments you could help make in order for them to have this conversation or ask these questions of people to understand what the cost is of not creating a culture of change? Because we all know the benefits of being able to bring in more business, of being able to operate more in a more streamlined way more cost-effectively, to be able to attract a higher caliber of person into your business. How would you start that conversation and have people listening to this begin asking those questions within their own firm? If you don't practice change, then you're going to be blockbuster. Then you're going to be the taxis. You're going to be Alta Vista. You're going to be all those things that we don't even talk about anymore. You're going to be the cassette. You're going to be the A-track. You're going to be beta master, whatever it was. More importantly, you're not going to be able to attract people to work inside your company or retain them in an incredibly competitive environment because people want to be part of a mission that they can care about and missions are always constantly changing. All you really have to do is every single week ask people, what's one change you can make to make this process better? Or if you were me, what would you change? Because they're the ones that really know and give them the ability to make the change. One of the stories I tell in the book is that my mother, she always used to cut off the sides of her roast beef when she's putting it into the oven. I go, mom, why'd you cut off the roast beef on the sides when you're putting it in the oven? She goes, grandma always did that. And it makes the meat taste better. And I would go back to grandma and I would say, grandma, why'd you do this? She goes, I didn't have a big enough pan actually to fit the roast into, so I had to cut off the sides. A lot of times in many organizations, Bill, we're doing things for reasons that are no longer valid or we no longer know about. Barry, you have been so generous in sharing with us today about Change Masters, the research you've done, helping us understand that everyone wants change, not just the risks, effort, and costs that go along with it normally. You've taught us how to de-risk those, how to look at incentives in a proper way so that they're used temporarily rather than something to create conditional behavior and make it outside of what a person is looking to be reinforced for. We talked about the hazard of the dopamine hit and stepping outside of making decisions just based on whether it makes you feel good, but actually charting your course rather than whatever way the, the winds take you. We talked about the importance of creating a culture of change, making it safe 
and modeling it, that it's something that everyone knows that we're all doing within our organizations in order to take small steps, experiment, learn from them so that we can all be better at change and aspire to become change masters. Before we say goodbye for now, tell me, where is it that people can find out more about you and your work online? Sure. Just go to my website, which is www.barrymoltz.com. Right, we're going to link to barrymoltz.com. We're going to link to places to buy this book as well as your other books, as well as your social media, so that people find it super easy to keep up with what's going on in your world. The Greek philosopher Heraclitus said, change is the only constant in life. Barry Maltz, author of Change Masters, had actually make the changes you already know you need to make. I want to thank you once again for joining me on My Quest for the Best. Thanks, Bill. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on My Quest for the Best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback, and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review My Quest for the Best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on My Quest for the Best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.